Thank you. Good evening. It's good to be with you. It's good to have our evening services uh, happening again, which will obviously mean nothing to you if this is the first time you're here, but we're so glad uh, that you are here. I uh, just want to uh, follow that point up from Nathaniel about Academy. It's a great way to get trained in God's purposes. It's a great way to know more about God's Word and know more about God himself and know more about the part that you have been called to play uh, in serving the church. So if you are part of this church, you haven't signed up for it already, uh, I'd really want Want to commend it to you. All the information is on the website and will be in the news email on Tuesday. So we are continuing our summer preaching series. We've been doing these, uh, this series in the morning. Now we're going to be doing it in the morning and the evening for the next few weeks. And we've called the series Not All Heroes Wear Capes because it's about people uh, listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the 11th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, who are often referred to as the heroes of faith. There's a whole list of them there, and so that's what we often call them. But today's character is, to be honest, more of an anti-hero than he is a hero. In fact, when you read his story, you will sometimes think, what is this guy even doing in the Bible at all? But God wants to teach us about faith tonight. And more importantly than that even, God wants to teach us about himself. And so we're going to take a quick overview of this guy's life, and then we're going to see how two seemingly unspectacular things that he did uh, towards the very end of his life, uh, on his deathbed even, speak to us about faith. So he is included in the Bible for several reasons, and uh, we're going to explore some of those this evening, and I think God wants to speak to you about those. Why don't we pray quickly and just say, Lord, our hearts uh, and our ears are open to you. and We really want you to speak to us. And we really want you to have your way amongst us this evening. And uh, we really want you to give me grace to speak the words you want me to speak so that we would all hear from you. So be amongst us and be working through us, oh God. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at these things. We're going to end our time uh, by uh, praying for one another. Uh, just give you a heads up on that. It'll be an opportunity for, for you to be prayed for, to pray uh, for other people as well. If that's not something you usually do, that's absolutely fine. But we are going to do that as we end. And I like to give um, uh, twists only in what I'm saying in the preach rather than what might actually happen during our time together. So I thought I'd let you know that to start with. So our character tonight. When he was born, they named him Jacob which means he takes by the heel, which also means deceiver, because he was grasping at his older twin's brother Esau's heel. When Esau was being delivered ahead of Jacob, Jacob's hand was on Esau's heel. And so his parents were like, well, that's what we're going to call you, because that's obviously a fairly memorable thing to do when you are not even quite being born. Um, That's what they did. That's what they called him that. And he spent a lot of his life living up to that name. He he tricked his father into giving him the inheritance that his father Isaac wanted to give to his other brother Esau. Which is, just in case you're wondering, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's generally a bad thing. All the more so, his father who was blind and and Jacob disguised himself as Esau... His dad's like, he still sounds a bit like Jacob. He says to him, are you Jacob or Esau? At which point he says, I'm Esau. This is direct lying. That is not what you're supposed to do at all, in case you weren't sure. And his life just goes on like this. 
it becomes really a bit of a soap opera. Because his brother is really angry about what he's done, his brother wants to kill him, which is also not allowed. But So Jacob goes on the run, and he... Uh, goes hundreds of miles away and gets connected with kind of old relatives of his. Uh, but when he's there, he falls in love with a woman called Rachel. But her dad is even more manipulative than Jacob is. And so I don't quite know how he to do this, but he tricks Jacob into marrying Rachel's older sister Leah first. So he's like, okay, well, I, I didn't want to marry her, but now you've made me marry her, but I still want to marry Rachel. So he marries Rachel too, which again, isn't what we're supposed to do. Those two wives that he's stuck with have such a rivalry that gets so weird that they each give him one of their serving women to have children with. And at no point does he say, no way, that's an awful idea. He says, okay. From these four women, he ends up with 12 sons and a daughter. And his parenting is so bad and so preferential that... The one who he gives all his attention to, Joseph, in the end, the other 11 brothers gang up on Joseph. They abduct him and they sell him into slavery and they lie to their dad that he's been killed by a wild animal. This is, this is his life. This is what it's like. And he spends much of it on the run, trying to escape often from the people who he has deceived. He's always trying to manipulate situations to his advantage. It doesn't often go well for really very long at all. Now, I've kind of given a bit of a kind of cliche version of the story. There's incredible depth to it, some remarkable things about him and what's going on in the story. But if you just bullet point it like that, you think, how is this guy in the, you know, the, the chapter all about faith? How is this guy, in fact, blessed by God at all. There's a line uh, in a song by a band called The National. The song's called Mistaken for Strangers. And it contains the line, oh, you wouldn't, watch an, you wouldn't want an angel watching over you. Surprise, surprise, they wouldn't want to watch. And it's about someone whose life's gone wrong. And you think, man, this sounds, Jacob is that kind of guy. He seems to be trying to work it out this whole time. And the things he had, he's doing, God's not going to want to be anywhere near him. Well, here's the thing. Angels don't just watch over Jacob. Angels meet Jacob on a quite regular basis. They meet with him three times and they keep him safe from various trouble that, to be honest, he's often got himself into. And even more than that, God meets with Jacob. He speaks to him on several occasions. He gives him incredible promises and he blesses him. Why? Does Jacob, with all this bad behavior, get treated in this way? Why does he get this favor from God? The answer is because God is always free to bless whoever he wants to. And he never does so on the basis of what we deserve. Before Esau and Jacob were born, God said of them, The older shall serve the younger. You can't get much more unmerited than that. God making a decision before you're even born. It really has nothing to do with you. Any blessing you've received from God, you can't say, because I did well, God did this. It never works like that. God is free to bless whom he chooses. And so here's something so important that we can learn from Jacob's anti-hero story before we get into the specifics of what Hebrews 11 has to say about him. And it's this, you don't have to scrub up before you can come to God. You don't have to get yourself looking good. You don't have to get your deeds looking good before you can come to God. 
In fact, if you're making a mess of your life, you will only make it worse if you try to improve yourself before you think you can come to God. Because we are all hopeless without him. There's only one person who is, who's perfect, and I'm sure it's not me, and I'm equally sure it's not you. There's only one person in all of history who earned God's pleasure by who he was and how he did it, and that's Jesus. And the great news of Christianity is that Jesus is that perfect person and he will share his goodness. He will share the favor that he has had with God forever with any who put their trust in him. To believe in Jesus, to ask him to become the Lord of our lives, is to receive all the favor of God that Jesus has. There's no way you could earn that. There's no way you could even get close to that. And Jesus says, I'm willing to give it all to you. And so we come to God with nothing to commend us, but that Jesus would take our place. And nothing in our hands, but the sins that he will graciously forgive. The distinction God makes between people is never between those who are well behaved and those who are badly behaved. It's between those who trust him and his son and those who won't. And so the first question that we need to ask this evening, that you need to ask yourself this evening, is are you trusting Jesus with your life? Are you putting your hope in him and what he has done? Or in you and what you are doing? Whether you're a Christian or not tonight, you need to ask yourself that question. So that's just an, that's an overview of the story. Now we're going to look at what the writer to the Hebrews wanted to focus on. There's a lot that he could have chosen. Yeah, so I've given some of the highlights. To be fair, most of Jacob's worst bits. There are a load of other great things that happen as well. So the writer's got all sorts of things to choose from. Like, right, I'm going to talk about Jacob now. What shall I talk about? In, in this letter to the Hebrews that he's writing. He could choose, they could choose one of the angelic encounters that Jacob had, because there were three of those. So you're like, well, which of these do I think is the most interesting? Or the vision of heaven that he was given, where he saw a ladder coming down from heaven, angels ascending and descending. That's pretty amazing. He could talk about when God miraculously multiplied the sheep uh, that Jacob was taking care of. Or when he stood before Pharaoh, who was the most powerful man in the whole earth. And rather than Jacob say to Pharaoh, oh, could you help me? Jacob says, I will bless you. That's pretty amazing. Surely surely it should be the time when he wrestled all night with God and had his name changed to Israel as a result of that night. I mean, that's got to be a highlight, surely. Nothing as dramatic as that. Hebrews 11, verse 21, this is what the writer chooses to draw our attention to. By faith, Jacob, when dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And, um, we're going to put up a picture of Rembrandt's illustration of what this might have looked like if you know, Jacob had been Dutch and living in the 17th century. <laughs> it, even, when a grand, even when a great master is painting it, it doesn't look like the most exciting moment of someone's life. If you had to choose one, would you have chosen this one? Why? 
there's a lot going on. And when we understand the story of Jacob that he was in, and when we understand what Hebrews 11 is all about, I hope this will help us to understand it a bit more. So I want to just explain to you what I think the immediate context is and then the story context. Because the section of Hebrews 11 that we're in is talking about the patriarchs. Now, these were the fathers of God's people uh, whom he first called to follow him. And he promised to them that he would give them a land that they would fill, that they would become a nation. And at the start, there was just an old couple called Abraham and Sarah. And that was it. They were in their 70s. They didn't have any children. And God said, I'm promising you that you're going to become a nation. I'm like, well, that's difficult. But God promised it, and because God's a God of miracles, uh, Abraham and Sarah had a son. He was called Isaac. God said to Isaac, you are going to become a nation. You're going to own this whole land. And Isaac's like, I've got two kids, and they fight all the time, and I don't own this land. How is this going to happen? And then God promises it to Jacob as well. So these three generations, they all receive the same promise. But even with all of Jacob's procreative activity, he's kind of trying his best, it would seem, to build a nation. Um, By the end of his life, there were probably less than 200 of them. And they owned a couple of little bits of this land that God had promised to them. But they weren't even living in it at the time. They're living in Egypt. So there's a promise, and then there's the seeming reality of their situation. And that's why Hebrews 11.13 says of the patriarchs that these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So Abraham dies not owning the land and not seeing a nation. Isaac dies, not owning the land, not seeing a nation. Jacob dies, not seeing the land, not being a nation. But they knew that one day they would, through their descendants, they knew it was going to happen. And this takes us all the way back to the start of Hebrews chapter 11, where we're given our famous definition of faith is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The patriarchs had this kind of faith. They were assured that what God had promised them would happen. They saw it by faith. If they looked in the land that God had promised, it was full of other people. But when they looked at it, they saw it belonging to them. And so the actions of Jacob that the author mentions are about him looking forward. They are about him seeing with faith the promise fulfilled. So when we understand that, we can start to make a bit more sense of the passage that we're in. But just as Jacob died awaiting a future in a promised land, so Christians now, today, die in faith that things as they are are not all that there is. We look forward We look forward to the fact that God is going to make this earth new. That he is going to end all that is wrong within it. That he is going to bring bring heaven to it and so fill it with his goodness. That there's nothing but good. And that all those who put their trust in him will be with him on it and in it forever. That is the Christian hope. That is what Christians are looking forward to. I don't know if you're a Christian today and what you are particularly looking forward to, but this is what you're meant to be looking forward to. And until that happens, we will not be truly home. 
we will be pilgrims who have not arrived at their destination. We will be those who are strangers and exiles on the earth. And we are to live that way all the time. This is the faith that we're to live by, that we aren't where we should be yet. I'm gonna, I want to prove my case and I want to explore its implications by looking in a bit more detail at the story that the writer of the Hebrews is alluding to. You can find it in Genesis 47 and 48. We're going to deal with it in two parts, do it in reverse order. We're going to talk about Jacob worshipping first, and then we're going to talk about him blessing. So in Genesis 47, uh, the words will probably come up on the screen, uh, verses 27 onwards. It says, Then Israel, which at this point is actually Jacob and his family, then Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I've found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. He worshipped. So we've seen that Jacob is the third generation of his family to be promised land in Canaan where their people can flourish and where the world can be blessed by them. So that's the whole point of this. these people being given this land is that the whole world will see them, will see God at work in them and will come to God as well. That's why they've got to be in that place. But Jacob can testify this promise that we've been given, the gap between it and its fulfillment is still quite substantial. And he'd spent so much of his life on the run. Uh, the land that he was been, had been promised was filled with other people. You just think, well, Jacob's life and, and this promise, they're really at, at odds. And then in the plans of God, Joseph, if you remember, was, you probably know it anyway, but he was sold in slavery by his brothers and went down to Egypt. And then through God's miraculous provision, he becomes prime minister of Egypt. And so he's got the run of the whole country, essentially. And so he's able to say to his family at a time of famine, Come here, live here, you will be safe. Here, you will be okay. And in fact, not only can you live here and be safe, I have the favor of Pharaoh. Pharaoh basically does whatever I ask him to do. I mean, you might, there can't be a better place on earth to live, surely. A, a powerful nation with loads of resources and you have the ear of the boss. What a great deal. It would be easy to think that Egypt would be the best place for them permanently. I mean, why not, why not stay there and you know, forget about Canaan? I mean, you've been given a place here, and you certainly haven't been given a place over there. I mean, it's been little but trouble, and it's full of people who don't want you to live there. Whereas here, you're being told, yeah, come and live here. Indeed, Joseph, because of the, just the difficult family situation that he'd experienced, when his first son was born, he called him Manasseh, which means forgetting. And we're told that Joseph said, the reason I'm calling my son forgetting it's because God has made me forget all my hardship and my father's house. So Joseph is like, thank goodness I'm not there anymore. 
Now, there's a reconciliation with the family, but they're all living in Egypt now. We're told that all of Jacob's children settled well there. They liked living there. They grew rich. They had loads of children. And even Genesis 47 says, it says they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, that's using part of the exact language that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been given by God. He said, I'm going to bless you, and you will multiply. You'll be fruitful. So they could have said, well, remember God said that was part of the promise, and we're doing that. That's enough, surely. I know we're not quite where we originally said we're going to be, but, you know, circumstances change, don't they? And, hey, we're doing some of what God's called us to do. For the children who were born and brought up in Egypt, how would they know any different? Like, this is a nice life here. Why would I want to move? This is perilous for the whole story of God's purpose of rescue in the entire Old Testament. It's, it, it, this is not the plan, but it's, uh, this, this is a tipping point. This is when it could happen. That instead of being in the land they promised, they stay somewhere else. And this is why, as Jacob lies dying, he brings Joseph in. And he says to Joseph, you have to promise me that you are going to bury me in the land that we were promised, in Canaan. He says, bury me with my fathers. He says, do not bury me in Egypt because I am not an Egyptian. I am a stranger here. I am an heir of the promise that Canaan would be my land. And so that is where I should be. By implication, that is where my descendants should be. We may stay briefly in Egypt, but we must end up in Canaan. That is where we're supposed to be. Well, how will Joseph reply? I mean, he's the prime minister of Egypt. This, this place has been great for him. Will he believe instead these promises that he hasn't really heard directly? Will he believe these promises that, that seem you know, impossible? How's that going to happen? Joseph says, I will bury you in the land which has been promised to us. He takes the promise, not just dad and his old stories. No, I will bury you in the land that God has promised us. The land that we will one day fill. The place which is our true home. And by implication, I will tell my children that that is where we have got to end up. And whether it's their generation or the next or the next or the next. And as it happens, it will be 400 years until they got there. But we will keep telling that story. We will keep looking in faith to that place. To what God has promised us to go to. And so Jacob, grateful for this hope of future faith, bows his head in worship to the God who had made the promises and would fulfill them. His family would remember where it had come from and where it was going. There'd be many more miracles required to get them out of there. They would be slaves before they were set free. But Jacob knows that somehow God will do it. And he says to Joseph, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And so that's why the writer of the Hebrews thinks this is a moment of great faith. Because Jacob is looking to something that he cannot do, but he believes God will do. And for us, it raises a really important question of allegiance. To whom do we see ourselves belonging? 
when the world around us tells us, this is how you're to live. This is how you're to behave. This is what is right. This is what is wrong. Do we agree with it? Do we go with it? Do we live as those around us tell us to live? Or when God tells us to do things that are difficult, when God tells us to do things that don't currently make sense, when God tells us to do things that cost us, Costly to our reputations, like we were hearing earlier uh, about the turning. Cost, costly to just our, our comfort zones. Costly financially, costly emotionally. Will we obey him? All these questions that most of us experience in some form or other most days, and certainly with every big choice we're faced with. The issue is allegiance. To whom do you belong? In another Bible passage about worship written, written centuries later, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable and perfect. And Paul's saying there that part of our worship, our entire lives are to be worshipped, and part of that means not being the same as the world that lives in opposition to God. You have to work out what he is saying, what he is calling us to do, and then you will be in conflict with the world around you. Now, Jacob has spent so much of his life in trouble and on the run and having enemies present themselves very much front and center to them. I think Jacob probably knows that this is what life's like. And Christians who experience severe persecution for their faith are usually able to work out the difference pretty easily. But what about the likes of us? Like Joseph. Joseph worked in Egypt. He looked like an Egyptian. He was bringing up children who had only ever known Egypt. Was there any difference between him and them? We find that there was. In the personal choices that Joseph makes and where he ultimately put his hope and the one to whom he gave all his praise. He stands in front of Pharaoh who is seen as a God by his people and Joseph says, the God who I believe is able to do what you can't do. Joseph dressed as an Egyptian, working in Egypt, surrounded by Egyptians, so living in the world but then says, I am not like you. You don't own me. I don't belong to you. I belong to the God of my fathers, actually. You can't serve two masters, Jesus told us. So my question to you this evening is, whom do you serve? Is it the Lord Jesus? Or is it someone else? Does your life only make sense to people around you if they realize that your hope is in the age to come and not this present life? Because I think often as Christians, we think if we, li- if we have a life that's really good by the standards of this world, people might think that God's good because he's helped us to do that, and therefore they might become Christians. That's what we tend to think. If it looks good by what people think around us, then that will then persuade them. And the Bible never tells us to do that. It tells us to live good lives that the world thinks, wow, that's wonderful. But it tells us to put our hope only in the life that's to come so that people will ask, why are you living that way? Why have you given your money in that way? Why do you give your time in that way? Why won't you behave in that way? Why? Your life doesn't make sense to me. If our lives make sense just by what they look like to people, then we're just copying everyone else. And our allegiance, I would say, could be in doubt. 
But if we're living lives that only make sense in that we believe there's an eternity to come in which God will reward us for our faith, then the questions people ask of us will probably be quite different. And we'll be living, I think, how God wants us to. What would your life look like if you were doing that? Finally, let's look at Jacob's blessing. Chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father's ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance." As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." And so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. And then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, you, moreover I've given to you, rather than your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. There's a lot going on in that story that has some cultural distance between us and can be confusing, but I just want to focus on a couple of things as we end our time together. 
like his desire to be buried in Canaan, the blessings that Jacob gave to Joseph's sons were also statements of faith. They are all about looking forward. He talks about their inheritance, meaning the land, which we've already seen is the, the place they're going to go to, saying you are going to have that. That is a statement of faith. He talks about them growing into a multitude. That is a statement of faith. And he teaches us how we can bless others in a similar way. I know sometimes when we're praying for people, we think, well, what, what should I do? What should I say? What shouldn't I say? Well, Jacob does a couple of things here that I think are really instructive for us and, and helpful. And we're going to pray for one another a little bit later, so you want to listen up. He looks back over his life to look forward over theirs. He talks about the God who has blessed my fathers. He talks about the God who has shepherded my life. He talks about the God who's rescued me from evil. He says, God, you did all those things. Will you do them again for these? We sing a a hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, which says of God, There is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. And so you can pray in that way. You say, God, you are like that with me. You are like that with them. Be like that with these two. We can pray that way. We can say, from this to that. Having experienced God's goodness in our lives, we can pray similar blessings on other people. Obviously, we're like Jacob. We realize that that God's blessing has nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with anything that we've earned. It's about being chosen by God. It's about God's kindness, God's faithfulness, God's love. And so when we're blessing, we say, God, be like you always are. Do what you always do. But we should also, when we're doing this, I think, and this is the, the point of the faith, is we should learn to expect the unexpected. And that's what's going on with particularly what Jacob does with the crossing of the hands. Now Joseph, his son, had experienced quite a lot of um, this way of living. He was chosen by God to be above all his other brothers. He was the 11th out of 12. So that's not how it usually goes. Usually the eldest son is the one who gets the best and the most from the father. But God had said, no, for Joseph, that's you. But still, even though I think Joseph must have thought, well, maybe I was a bit of an exception, but now with my sons, his Manasseh the older, his Ephraim the younger, I want Manasseh to get the biggest blessing, so I'm going to put him by my father's right hand, because the right hand symbolizes strength and virility and all the best that you have, because most of them are right-handed. And then he sees his father doing this, and he's like, oh, Dad, you're still doing it. You're still this trickster, this per He's like, I just cannot, I can't trust him to do anything. And And he's like, no, no, that's the wrong thing to do. But Jacob is led prophetically by God at this point. Isn't Jacob just being like, yeah, I'll just do this anyway. No, he's like, I'm led by God. And and he says, says, I know, I know. But this is what God is going to do. And maybe he smiled as he did so, thinking back to his own situation with his older brother and how God chose him instead of Esau. Thinking back to his dad and how, his God, how God chose Isaac and not his older half-brother Ishmael. Even how God chose Abraham and Sarah, a couple in their 70s with no children. God said, those are whom I'm going to start a nation. And so as he crosses his arms over, I think Jacob knows that once again, God is going to do what people don't expect him to do. We shouldn't get so familiar with the stories of the Bible that we forget how surprising and perplexing so many of them are. You're like, oh yes, of course. 
water gets turned into wine. Oh yes, of course. The person who's at the bottom of the rung gets, you know, become, you know, the, the shepherd who no one knows about, who's like the youngest son, who no one cares. About. Oh, of course he becomes the king. You know, of course the person who everyone ignores is where the world-changing action is. Of course, well, the person of whom nothing ex- is expected is used by God to do incredible things. We kind of get used to those things. If you're a Christian, you've been around these stories for a while. You're like, oh yes, of course that happens. But uh, that isn't, of course. <laughs> That's not how life goes. Most of the time, it's the strongest person who does the best. Most of the time, it's where, you know, world-changing events happen with world-changing people, all these kind of things. But there are so many of these stories of the unexpected happening in the Bible that we seem to kind of get used to it. And we miss the confrontational drama of it, which is God saying, again and again, I'm not going to do what you expect. And above all these stories is the story to which they all point which is that God would live among us in poverty. That God would live among us and be rejected by all the authorities rather than revealing himself in such glory that they all bow down before him. That God would die in shame on a cross so that in weakness his strength would triumph, so that sinners would be made saints, so that enemies would become adopted children. And if you're used to these kind of stories, if you've read them for a long time, you just think, oh yeah, of course. It's not, of course. It is the wonderful, radical ways of God. And so to remember this and to celebrate this will help us to expect it in our own lives when God's doing another new thing that we wouldn't have planned for. Okay, yep, this is actually him. This isn't I've made a mistake. It's not he's made a mistake. He knows what he's doing and the arms are being crossed over again. Now, some of you will like the idea of this. Some of you will be like, yes, please, I love the unexpected. But obviously, the trick about that is that what would be unexpected for you would then be perhaps expected for other people. You're going to have to deal with that frustration, if that makes sense. But others of us, we're a bit slow to accept when God's plans are better than ours. And we need to repent. We need to beg him, say, Lord, whatever you want, however you want to do this. Let's not ask him to bless our plans, but to bless us with his plans. Jacob would tell us that they are far better than we can imagine. He reminds Joseph, I never expected to see your face. I thought you were dead. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Whether it's in this life or the next, God's plans for those who trust him will end happily with joy and feasting, with worship and blessings. God's calling us to a life of faith which believes that and that follows him wherever he takes us with that being our final destination. So I'd, I'd love us to end our time together by, by blessing one another like Jacob did. I'd, I'd, I'd love us to lay hands on one another. You've just seen that's what happens in the Bible. And um, you don't have to do the crossing over part. Don't worry about that. But you can just, you can just say, yeah, I, I just want to bless you in the name of Jesus. If you haven't done this before, you feel a bit uncomfortable, that's okay. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you are under no obligation to join in whatsoever. If you're like, I'm not sure about praying for someone, but I'm happy for you to pray with me, then just communicate that. Or, or if you just think, I'm not quite sure about this, just, you can just spend time thinking about what you've heard tonight, about how God's not looking for you to get your life in order, but he's looking for you to come to him and trust him and let him get to work. Or about how important faith is to him. And about where real hope lies, not in this life, but in the one to come. But for the rest of us, I, I want us to pray uh, that this God who's been so good to us will be good to others also. Be good to those who, we are, uh, who we're praying for. You may have 
faith that God's given you specifically. Some people just have faith that God will heal people uh, or that he'll give them provision or that they're called to be leaders or, or just things like that. You'll, well, you'll know yourself because like Jacob says, he's like, God, you've done these things for me. I pray you do them for these two. And we can pray that way. And you can ask the Holy Spirit to work in them as he's worked in you and just, you just bless the unexpected and pray for more of it. How does that sound? Good, we're going to do it.